This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for March 11th, 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. On the show today, executive producer of Alert Radio, Cy Gonick, will interview Mordecai Brimberg, who's in Winnipeg lecturing as part of Israel Apartheid Week. And we'll be talking to Sarah Granke in regards to International Women's Day. Also, we'll have Music is the Weapon. And Around the Left in Seven Days. And the Headlines. That and much more. Happy International Women's Day to alert listeners. 100 years ago, at the Second International Socialist Women's Conference, participants from 17 countries voted unanimously to create a day to honour the struggles of working-class women. International Women's Day was born, and it's been celebrated in countries across the globe ever since. Women now, just as they did 100 years ago, hold a unique economic and social position in society, oppressed in the home and super exploited in the workplace. Women suffer more frequently from poverty. They labor long hours at home, raising the young and nursing the aged and sick. And they often also perform double duty outside the home, working for lower wages than their male counterparts. This harsh reality makes women the best and toughest leaders of movements fighting for social and economic justice. In other words, women always have everything to gain and little to lose by organizing for a better world. As the South African song proclaims, when you strike a woman, you strike a rock. It hardly needs stating that a great number of challenges remain for women in Canada and around the world. These include inequalities in pay and work conditions, lack of adequate access to childcare facilities, the conditions of poverty faced by many single mothers, the deterioration of social programs, sexual and domestic violence, amongst others. Rebellion by women against an unjust global economic order is very much alive. In Iran, women are revolting against a thoroughly bankrupt, oppressive regime. In Gaza and the West Bank, Palestinian women are organizing an international boycott of Israel. In Italy, France and Spain, immigrant women went on strike against xenophobic racism. In Australia, feminists convened a national conference to coordinate and re-energize the abortion rights movement. In Mexico, women staunchly defend striking mine workers who fight for basic labor and human rights. This year, IWD internationally is making a special note of the disaster in Haiti. The Ontario Public Services Employees Union Women's Committee, for example, notes, we are being asked to honour the lives of feminist Haitian leaders who died in the massive earthquake on January 12th. An activity in Haiti's Catherine Flon Plaza will be held to share what they learned from three fallen feminist leaders, Miriam Merlet, Magali Marcelin and Anne-Marie Coriolan. All three leaders had a long history of feminist activism. They reformed a judiciary that never took rape seriously, created organizations and houses to protect girls and women against domestic violence and trafficking, published a feminist newspaper, expanded a documentary center and a historical archive, and struggled for the protection of sexual and reproductive rights. In the United States, the organization called Radical Women sent out this message to alert, which we are pleased to pass on to our listeners. On this 100th anniversary of the declaration of IWD, the issues may have changed, but the nature of the struggle remains the same. Like the socialist women who founded IWD, Radical Women believes the movements for social and economic justice must be anti-capitalist and tackle head-on the bankrupt economic system that pits nations and peoples against each other in a dog-eat-dog race to the bottom so that a tiny minority can exploit the Earth's resources and human labor for private gain. The day the world's peoples turn this free market pyramid upside down will be a great advance along the path of achieving full equality and quality of life for all of humanity. And now the alert headlines for March 11th, 2010. 
A University of Ottawa law professor, Amir Araran, says documents show that Canadian officials intended Afghan detainees to be tortured in order to gather further intelligence. Adaran has been digging deep into the issue and told CBC News he has seen uncensored versions of government documents released last year. If the allegations are true, such actions would constitute a war crime. Until now, the controversy is centered on whether the government turned a blind eye to abuse of Afghan detainees. However, Adaran said the full versions of the documents show that Canada went even further in intentionally handing over prisoners to torturers. And it wasn't accidental. It was done so that they could be interrogated using harsher methods, he concluded. Prime Minister Stephen Harper has countered these allegations by defending the role of Canada's spy service in the questioning of Afghan prisoners. Opposition leaders have called for a public inquiry into Afghan detainee abuse. Liberal MP Ujjal Dozanj, who is a member of the Special House Committee on Afghanistan, asked the Prime Minister whether the government conducted a deliberate policy of rendition and outsourcing of torture of Afghan detainees for extracting additional information. NDP leader Jack Layden accused CSIS of acting like the CIA. Nigerian officials say close to 500 people may have been killed in sectarian violence near the central city of Jos. Witnesses said gangs armed with guns and machetes rampaged through three mostly Christian villages, firing shots to draw people from their homes and then running them down and killing them. Yemi Kosoko, a reporter with the independent Nigerian news network Channels, told the Associated Press most of the bodies appeared to be women and children killed by blows from machetes. Nigeria, Africa's most populous country with an estimated population of close to 150 million, has had a long history of both ethnic and religious violence. The attack occurred in a middle belt between the predominantly Muslim North and the Christian South, where sectarian violence has been reoccurring. In a rare public referendum on the repayment of a foreign liability, Icelanders have resoundedly rejected a plan to reimburse overseas depositors after the failure of an online Icelandic bank. A whopping 93% of Icelanders rebuffed a government push to reimburse Britain and the Netherlands $5.3 billion U.S. from the October 2008 collapse of an Icelandic internet bank. The failure led Britain and the Netherlands, the two nations where the banks had foreign depositors, to step in and partially pay back billions of euros lost by their citizens. The March, March 6th vote captured widespread rage in Iceland over years of banking sector excess that resulted in a financial meltdown at the height of the global financial crisis. Israel has agreed to grant United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and the European Union's Foreign Policy Commissioner, Catherine Ashton, entry into the Gaza Strip. This is the first time it has acceded to such a request from international officials since Operation Cast Lead in December 2008. Ban is scheduled to arrive in Israel within the next few weeks, during which time he will cross the border into Gaza. The reason for the visit is reportedly to ease the international pressure on Israel relating to its blockade of the Gaza Strip. U.S. Vice President Joe Biden arrived in Israel on March 8th, one day after the Palestinians agreed to indirect talks with Israel for the first time since the Israeli assault on Gaza. Biden is the most senior U.S. official to visit Israel since President Obama took office in January 2009. On the day of his, of his arrival, Israel approved the construction of 112 new homes in the Jewish settlement in the occupied West Bank, despite a partial moratorium on such construction. The Palestinians have warned that further settlement growth threatened the peace process and future talks. Canada has listed the Somalia-based Shihab militia as a terrorist organization. The listing became effective on March the 5th and prohibits all persons in Canada, as well as Canadians abroad, from knowingly dealing with assets owned or controlled by the Al-Qaeda-linked group. Staying in Somalia, the New York Times reports the U.S. is helping the Somali government prepare a major offensive to take the capital of Mogadishu from Islamist militants. Over the past six months, Somalia has farmed out young men to Djibouti, Ethiopia, Uganda, Kenya, and Sudan for military instruction, and most are now back in the capital waiting to fight. So far, most of the U.S. military assistance to the Somali government has been focused on training, but a U.S. official told the Times he expects U.S. covert forces will get involved in the offensive. 
the Indian government has reintroduced a bill which would reserve a third of all seats in the national parliament and state legislatures for women. Voting had been due on Monday, but was delayed by protests from opponents who forced the upper house to adjourn. Socialist MPs tore up copies of the legislation and shouted down speakers in an attempt to prevent the bill being debated. Smaller socialist parties argue it will, re will reduce representation of minorities and socially disadvantaged groups. They want set quotas for women from Muslim and low-caste communities. The bill was first proposed in 1996 but never passed. This time it has the backing of India's main parties. At present, women make up just 10% of the lower house of parliament and significantly less in state assemblies. The bill's backers had hoped voting would take place on March 8th, International Women's Day. Catherine Bigelow has become the first woman in history to win the Best Director Award at the Oscars. Bigelow's film, The Hurt Locker, won a total of six Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. Meanwhile, The Cove won the Oscar for Best Documentary. The film exposes bloody dolphin hunting in a Japanese fishing town. Jeffrey Fletcher became the first African-American to win an Oscar for Best Writing. He won Best Adapted Screenplay for the film Precious. Meanwhile, Monique won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role as Mary Jones in Precious. Monique is only the fifth black woman to win an acting Oscar. And those are the alert headlines for March 11th, 2010. And now for Around the Left for the week of March 11th, 2010. In 2008, the photographer Louis Helbig flew across the country in a 1946 antique aircraft. The aerial perspective allowed him to see our country in a unique way, especially the Alberta tar sands. Gallery DK in Toronto is now hosting an exhibition that features the photographs Helbig took of the Alberta tar sands. Beautiful Destruction, Alberta Tar Sands Aerial Photographs runs until March 28th at Gallery DK, 1332 Queen Street in Toronto. March 15th is the International Day Against Police Brutality. This year's theme is Alternatives to the Police, a celebration of community power. A march will take place in Winnipeg on Saturday, March the 13th. Meet in the park next to Dinaway on Selkirk Avenue at 12 p.m. The march will end up at Magnus Eliasson Recreation Center on Langside. After the march, there will be a free movie at the rec center. Free childcare will also be available. In celebration of the life of Howard Zinn, there will be a screening of You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, a short documentary that chronicles Zinn's life and activism. The screening begins at 6.30 p.m. on March 18th in room 3-311 at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. On March 19th in Winnipeg, Canadian Dimension launches its new Indian Country issue. The launch will be held at the Urban Shaman Gallery, 290 McDermott Avenue at 7 p.m. Several contributors to the issue will be presenting. They include Peter Kolchiski, Nigen, James Sinclair, and Jim Silver. On March 20th in Winnipeg, the Old Market Autonomous Zone at 91 Albert Street in Winnipeg's Exchange District is holding a fundraiser to help convert the building into a cooperative. This is the building that is home to Mondragon Bookstore and Cafe, Canadian Dimension Magazine, Cop Watch, and other progressive causes. The kickoff event for the campaign is at 7.30 p.m. Saturday, March 20th at the Mondragon Bookstore and Cafe. Ian Angus is the editor of the online journal Climate and Capitalism and Socialist Voice. The Global Fight for Climate Justice is a collection of essays edited by Angus that offer answers to the most important questions of our day. Why is capitalism destroying the conditions that make life on Earth possible? How can we stop the destruction before it's too late? This book is being launched on March 23rd at Octopus Books, 116 Avenue in Ottawa. The launch begins at 7 p.m. And that's Around the Left for March 11th, 2010. Alert Radio is the official podcast of Canada's leading progressive political magazine, Canadian Dimension. If you'd like to order a subscription to Canadian Dimension, go to our website at canadiandimension.com or pick up our latest issue on newsstands today.
This is Alert Radio. I'm Cy Gonick. I'm the executive producer of the show. And uh, this week is uh, Israel Apartheid Week uh, in, in Winnipeg. And uh, we invited Mordecai Brimberg from Vancouver to participate uh, with us um, in various panels being held at the University of Manitoba and, and downtown. And um, we've invited him on the show um, today to talk to us about some aspects of um, Israel Apartheid Week. So welcome to Alert Radio once again, Thank Mordecai. you. Thank you very much, and I'm glad to be in the studio this time. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the uh, effort, uh, really a frantic effort on the part of uh, various organizations within the Jewish community like B'nai B'rith and Canadian Jewish Congress to shut down this discussion, to shut down um, Israel Apartheid Week, to silence uh, any kind of uh, uh, critical uh, discussion of Israel. Um, is this uh, we can let's talk about that effort and then talk about with you uh, is this something uh, uh, unique about this experience or do we find this historically something that uh, happens uh, uh, through time um, to shut down discussion to silence to censor discussion well certainly the focus on shutting down Israel apartheid week is intense and it has been uh, currently the major f aspect, the major target of, uh, of the silencing campaign. But the campaign, I think people should recognize, is long-standing and broad. So it encompasses efforts to um, uh, prevent um, children, for example, in Ontario, uh, from uh, reading books that present to them other children's voices in one book combining Palestinian and uh, Jewish-Israeli children called Three Wishes. So there was a campaign a few years ago to, to shut that down. There's uh, campaigns to uh, shut down performances of plays that uh, present the diaries of uh, young Rachel Corey, who was killed by an Israeli bulldozer in Rafah, in Gaza, while she was trying to stop it from uh, demolishing a Palestinian home. There are campaigns uh, like the Asper campaign to sue people in Vancouver who produced a parody of one of their Vancouver papers and to use a slap suit to uh, embroil people in uh, defending their right to speech. There are campaigns now in the government to cut funding for many organizations. Kairos, for example, is one, which is an ecumenical organization of religious groupings in Canada, mainstream churches, because uh, they were concerned as well, among other things, with the condition and, and situation of uh, Palestinian people. There's efforts to cut funding for universities that sponsor academic forums that deal with a serious discussion of the state formation in Israel and alternatives to it. So it runs the gamut of areas from government campaigns through uh, grassroots, uh, I wouldn't call it grassroots, I guess, uh, Canadian Jewish Congress, uh, B'nai B'rith organizations, which are primarily dedicated to advocating for Israel, by them to shut down uh, discussion. And are, can we talk about some parallel examples uh, beyond the subject of Israel-Palestine? Yeah, uh, yes, I... I mean, for me, uh, there, there are what, we, what I would call dark periods in, in history where this silencing campaign has, uh, has uh, left its mark and uh, been recognized as a dark period. To go back centuries, but still a, a famous case, of course, was the papacy's effort to shut down Galileo's uh, investigations and discoveries about the actual movements of the stars and the planets. The church wished to maintain its authority that the church is the center of the uh, human world, and so the earth must be the center of the galaxy. And Galileo was uh, silenced, 
and uh, forced to uh, repent his uh, his heresy, etc. We look back on that as being so backward, so uh, repugnant, so uh, anti-democratic. More recently, of course, in history, just to jump forward, but not so far, um, from uh, the current perspective, there's what we call the McCarthyite period, the period in the Cold War after World War II, where uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy became the central figure in the effort to suppress open discussion about American policy towards the rest of the world and what it was doing in relation to the Soviet Union. And any dissenting or critical comment on American policy was immediately labeled and smeared as a, a communist and using that to intimidate people, to withdraw from public discussion, to silence open exchange of ideas as to what policies should and should not be adopted by governments. And that incurred in Canada as well. And today we have this campaign, which I would call Zionist McCarthyism, in the issue of focusing on the issue of Israel and Palestine, an effort to restrict any critical comment on Israel by smearing it as anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism becomes the same as the smear of communism in the Cold War period. The effort is the same, the result is the same, and if it's successful, we'll look back on this period as another dark historical time when democratic uh, life uh, was constricted, uh, when people were uh, forced to be silent or to whisper their ideas as opposed to being mature and being able to respectfully but clearly express their different points of view and exchange them and compare them and 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 decide which had greater merit in what regards. Do you have um, a view on why this seems to, this um, effort to silence dissenters on this question seems to be escalating at this time. A few years ago when uh, Israel Apartheid Week was beginning, uh, there was the campaign launched to uh, university administrators to ban the use of the word apartheid and certainly uh, having uh, meetings about Israel Apartheid. Um, that seems to have uh, failed to achieve their purpose. Now they're approaching uh, politicians, legislators, to uh, attempt to, uh, to, to ban uh, an apartheid week. Um, so it seems to be escalating. Why, why am I right about that? And why, what's your view on that? I think it is more intense uh, immediately. Uh, I think there has been a sea change, not in elite opinion, but in popular understanding of the issue of uh, Palestine and Israel. And it's a process that uh, has been going on for six or seven years, I think, but has catalyzed and qualitatively changed in the aftermath of what people saw Israel do in Gaza in December of uh, 2008 and January of 2009. That was so uh, uh, startling and stark in its horror and its brutality and in people's realizing that Israel was not this ideal society which had made a few errors, but that it was fundamentally a society founded on injustices. And so I think people, even if they didn't have a full analysis, began to express uh, their apprehension, their outrage, their opposition to uh, what they saw on their television screen, regardless of how carefully Israel had constructed a uh, public relations campaign to complement its military campaign, that public relations campaign collapsed. And Israelis in the leadership and its 
prime minister in its uh, ministries of foreign affairs and advocates of Israel uh, in Canada and elsewhere in the world like Erwin Kotler, Jason Kenney, etc., recognized that there was a great failure. And so they've held strategy meetings in Israel as to how to recoup the authority that Israel once had in the popular consciousness. And they've come up with two strategies, one defensive, one offensive. The defensive one is what they call a rebranding campaign. Present Israel as a country separate from any conflict. It's a country simply of science, sandy beaches, good wines, music, etc. So to try and rebrand Israel as something other than this conflict over Palestinian rights and mistreatment of Palestinians. The offensive campaign is to shut down the critical commentary. And three particular aspects are very uh, much targeted by this campaign. One, to look at the question of Israel as apartheid under international law. They want to define that as anti-Semitic and eliminate it from discourse. Secondly, they want to shut down and eliminate from discourse any campaign to change and pressure Israel to change its policies, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign. And third, the root of uh, really its apartheid system, the notion of a Jewish state with privileged status for Jewish citizens over other citizens. They don't want any discussion of those things. And those three things are now the target of this offensive campaign of silencing. Well, in all those respects of those three strategies, um, at least to date, um, they're losing. Uh, the discussion is spreading, the opposition is spreading. Um, Israel as an apartheid state is is um, being discussed in in ways which would be impossible to to um, to have happened uh, even a few years ago. Um, so what's next? I mean, um, I suppose you could. <laughs> campaign of uh, pro, the pro-Israelis will continue, um, but uh, in view of their, there must be a certain frustration building up there. Uh, we talked to a young woman last week on this show uh, who organizes uh, the Israel Apartheid Week in McMaster, and she was saying that last year uh, their meetings were stormed by members of the Jewish community uh, who tried to break up the meeting. Um, and um, they failed. But is that something that might be happening more? And uh, supposing that the, uh, they failed to get the legislatures to, to ban um, apartheid activities? I think their main focus is the area where they have greatest support and strength, and that's their alliance with the political elite and the economic elite in, in Canada and in other countries. So I think uh, they will push to get Canadian Parliament to pass a law which will define criticism of apartheid uh, and, and boycott, divestment, sanctions specifically as a form of hate punishable by penalty under a criminal code and try and use that to intimidate further. I think their capacity to simply send goon squads uh, of uh, Jewish supporters uh, I think is weakening their uh, allegiance of uh, young Jewish people in the communities according to the surveys that I've seen recently uh, shows a, a quite astounding withdrawal of attachment to Israel. One recent survey in the United States showed that under the age of 35, uh, Jews, people who identified themselves as Jews, uh, almost half of them said 
that they would not regard the disappearance of Israel as a personal tragedy. If you compare that with the same survey finding for people over the age of 60, where it was around 80%, you see this huge shift in disengagement. So I think the capacity to mobilize within the within their own uh, uh, community organizations is not great enough to make the tactic of of uh, goon squads uh, a major uh, aspect of their efforts. All right, Mordecai, uh, very interesting conversation with you on this, and we will obviously be following this as as the year as this 2010 uh, proceeds. Thanks again for coming. Thank you. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Mordecai Brimberg, uh, who is a uh, anti-war activist from Vancouver, the founder of Campelnet, and um, frequent uh, uh, participant with us on Alert Radio. Monday was International Women's Day 2010. What's the state of the women's movement today? Is there a women's movement? Is feminism dead? Well, today we have on the phone with us in Winnipeg, Sarah Granke, who is proud to call herself a feminist. Sarah, obviously for you, the feminist movement is not over. You're part of a group in Winnipeg that calls itself FemRev. First off, welcome to the program, Sarah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Good stuff. We want to talk a little bit about FemRev. Who are you? Who makes up your membership? What does it do? So we'll start off with, what is FemRev? FemRev is a collective of young women um, in Winnipeg um, who are dedicated to changing political, economic, and social structures in order to improve women's lives and our society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, in Winnipeg, we are working really strongly, um, or we're working really hard to build a strong feminist presence as well as to be involved in a countrywide and global feminist community. So um, we're an activist group that uses different forms of expression, uh, which includes things like art, writing, protest, and performance activism. Okay. Um, and the, it's made up of women from various different walks of life and from different communities. Um, and we say it's, it's led by young feminists, um, but we also really value intergenerational membership um, and mentorship. So we have some what you might say are older feminists, wiser feminists, <laughs> um, who are sharing their wisdom and their learnings with us and us with them as well. That's fantastic. I'm glad to see and hear from you that it's a real eclectic mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is FemRev's vision? Um, I suppose maybe I'll speak about our shared values. Sure. Um, so we're, we're queer positive, we're sex positive. Um, we support the empowerment of all mothers and we advocate reproductive justice. Okay. Um, we work against patriarchy, colonialism, and capitalism. We stand in solidarity, and we work with and strive to include the voices and perspectives um, and positions of all women, um, but also acknowledging the historical and ongoing exclusion of women who have typically been othered. Um, we also um, strive to make all of our events and processes as accessible um, to everyone, um, whether it be for factors like ability or language. Um, and we also really respect um, value respect for the pe- for all people and the earth. Um, I guess what do we envision? We envision a world um, and a society where women and girls don't have the threat of violence hanging over them, um, where we're involved in decision making, um, where there's um, where colonialism is not taking place anymore. And I suppose these are very grandiose visions, but we're working. Um, in small steps to make these kinds of changes. And, I mean, that's how any movement is done. Um, You had mentioned othered. Can you expand on that a bit? Um, Yes, sure. Um, There are a lot of times when women have been excluded, um, where um, women of color or indigenous women were not included. For example, if we look at, um, in Canada, when women got the vote. Um, okay. In the early 1900s, I think, I can't remember the exact date, 1916, 1917, um, but that wasn't all women. 
um, that did not include Indigenous women, Aboriginal women. That came much later. So um, acknowledging that kind of exclusion um, and making sure that those voices that are not typically heard in the public realm or or silenced, um, that those voices are heard and shared and included. And so very important Mm -hmm. in any kind of feminist movement. Absolutely. Um, Let's talk about um, FEMREV being part of a pan-Canadian organization called Rebel, um, which I found very interesting reading today. Uh, Where does it come from and is it something new, Sarah? Yeah, I I would gladly talk about the Rebel movement. Um, It started in... I think 2002. Uh, I don't even... That's okay. Yeah, it's either 2002 or 2004. No, I'm pretty sure it's 2002 in Montreal. Um, there's a group of young women who had a, a just a Quebecois gathering of young feminists. Um, and they had, I believe it was kind of like a, a weekend event where they got together to deepen their analysis on feminist issues, how it affects them, what do they want to work towards. And out of that gathering came... Um, a call for a national movement um, and a national gathering. So in 2008, there was the first pan-Canadian young gathering for feminists. Um, And that was um, held in Montreal um, in October of 2008. And over 500 young women from every single province and territory in Canada, um, as well as international delegates, um, came for a three-day gathering in Montreal. The energy was incredibly vibrant and diverse. Um, It was, it involved a lot of action um, as well. So there were workshops um, where we discussed different issues. There were, there was like 30 to pick from. And then the purpose was also to then put that into action. So then everybody went into the streets um, and did direct action. That's fantastic mm-hmm. because a lot of times you'll go to workshops and gatherings and it's great because it's informative, but to actually put that knowledge into, into action right on the spot well, immediately. And that was it. We re- they really wanted to be able to um, skill people up so that we can actually create change. Something else that came out of that gathering was a manifesto um, that, again, there was a representative from each province and territory that worked on it. And so all the women that were at the gathering had the, um, got to work on it and collaborate, and then we all adopted it. So there is a vision and a mission and that, that 500 young women have, have adopted. Um, I can send that to you later if you like. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and uh, obviously our listeners will want to get uh, information on that, which we'll touch uh, on a little bit later. First off, um, let's talk future of Rebel. What are okay, some of the future yeah. events that people so, can become engaged in? So after the, the gathering, um, we, nobody, I think, wanted it to just end. It was like, this is great, but this is only the beginning. Right. So there was an evaluation meeting. There was a bilan in Montreal afterwards um, where, again, there were representatives um, from all over that came and discussed what happened and evaluated the process, and we all said we need to have more. So the first um, continuing action in the Rebel movement was a decentralized day of action, which was on March 8th of last year. Fantastic. Then following that, um, there was a call from a, a group in Montreal um, asking us all to do an action for um, a national pro-choice day of action. Mm-hmm. So there were decentralized days of action all over the place. So, um, so it's gone from being just an event that happened to a movement. There's a, an online... Um, listserv and connecting connecting women from all over Canada. And then there's also um, teleconferences every two or three months so that we can continue to collaborate and make change. Um, the next very big event um, is actually going to be happening in Winnipeg in May of 2011. Um, it's going to be the second Rebel Gathering, and that is um, an event that the FemRev Collective is organizing. That's fantastic. So Winnipeg gets to be host to all feminists from across Canada. Absolutely. Um, how can listeners contact Rebel? Um, you can contact Rebel um, through the website, which is www.rebel, spelled R-E-B-E-L-L-E-S, dot org. Um, and you can also email the FemRev Collective at femrev.collective at gmail.com. 
Wow, that's fantastic. It sounds uh, exciting. And I love hearing that uh, feminism is still alive and well. Absolutely, it is. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. And uh, we'll look forward to May 2011 right here in Winnipeg. Thanks again. Thank you. And that was Sarah Granke, a young feminist who's part of a Winnipeg group called FemRev, which is part of a pan-Canadian organization called Rebel. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon, and today's show is about a memory. A couple weeks ago, I was down in Memphis, Tennessee, in the deep south, and to get there, I had to cross through part of Arkansas, and while I was there in Memphis, I went over to see the motel where Martin Luther King got killed, and there's a whole museum there about Martin Luther King, and uh, it's an interesting place. It has it has some uh, defects to it. There's an attack on Cuba, which I didn't like very much, and uh, and there's a, just the tiniest, smallest mention of Malcolm X, but overall it's a really interesting place to be, and it brought back a lot of memories, and it brought back a lot of songs, and it brought back that whole time to me. Dr. Martin Luther King! <laughs> Thank you very kindly, my very dear friends. These churches are really loaded tonight. Never in the history of this nation have so many people been arrested for the cause of freedom and human dignity. You know there are approximately 2,500 people in jail right now. Now let me say this, the thing that we are challenged to do is to keep this movement moving. There is power in unity and there's power in numbers. I'll be 
to do is to keep marching, do tomorrow what we did today, and do it the next day, and then the next day we won't have to do it at all, because yesterday we feel, day before yesterday we filled up the jails, and then today we filled up the jail yard, And on the Myra, when they look up and see that number coming, I don't know what they're going to do. Oxford Town, Oxford Town, everybody's got their heads bowed down. Sun don't shine above the ground, it ain't going down to Oxford Town. Oxford Town Guns and clubs followed him down All because his face was brown Better get away from Oxford Town Oxford Town around the bend Come to the door he couldn't get in All because of the color of his skin What do you think about that my friend? Guess, son, we got met with a tear gas bomb. I don't even know why we come going back where we come from. Oxford Town in the afternoon, everybody's singing a soft tune. Two men died neath the Mississippi moon. Somebody better investigate soon. That was Bob Dylan with Oxford Town, and before that, Bethany Rufus and Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul, and Mary with If You Miss Me at the Back of the Bus, a real classic civil rights song. Talking about classic civil rights songs, back in 1973, as a young kid, I went to the Newport Folk Festival, and that whole festival was all about all about civil rights. Pete Seeger was leading everybody, and We Shall Overcome, the Freedom Singers were there. Bob Dylan was there, Tom Paxton was there, and everybody was singing about civil rights. It really was an extraordinary time, very political, very musical. My favorite writer of the time was a fellow by the name of Phil Oaks. Here's Phil Oaks with his classic, Here's to the State of Mississippi. Here's to the state of Mississippi. For underneath her borders the devil draws no line If you drag her muddy rivers, nameless bodies you will find Oh, the fat trees of the forest have hit a thousand crimes The calendar is lying when it reads the present time Oh, here's to the land, you've torn out the of Mississippi Who say the folks up north they just don't understand And they tremble in the shadows at the thunder of the clan Oh, the sweating of their souls can't wash the blood from off their hands 
Well, they smile and shrug their shoulders at the murder of a man. Oh, here's to the land. You've torn out the heart of Mississippi. Find yourself another country to be part of. And here's to the schools of Mississippi. Where they're teaching all the children that they don't have to care. All the rudiments of hatred are present everywhere. And every single classroom is a factory of despair. And there's nobody learning such a foreign word as farewell. Cops of Mississippi. They're chewing their tobacco as they lock the prison door, and their bellies bounce inside them when they knock you to the floor. No, they don't like taking prisoners in their private little wars. And behind their broken badges, there are murderers and Dimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. Can we do that again? Just leave it That is Alert Radio for March 11, 2010. We can be found at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. We hope you'll join us again next week. See you then. That was Phil Oaks with Here's to the State of Mississippi. Doesn't ring so true anymore, but it sure brings back a lot of memories. Talking about memories, one of the things that uh, really came out of the civil rights movement in that time period was the emergence of, uh, of black nationalism in the United States. 
One of the most important elements of the black nationalist movement was the black Muslims, the Muslims, the nation of Islam led by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and, of course, Malcolm X was part of that movement. Currently, the leader of the, of the Muslims in the United States is a man by the name of Louis Farrakhan. And people love him, people hate him. He's sure caused a lot of controversy. But before he became Louis Farrakhan, leader of the Muslims, he was a fine musician, and he was known as the Charmer. And here he is with a classic Calypso song called De Zombie Jamboree. Took place in a New York cemetery. Was a Jumbi Jamboree. Took place in Woodlawn Cemetery. Jumbies from all parts of the island. Some of them were great Calypsonian. Since this season was carnival, they got together in Bacchanal and they singing back to back, belly to belly. I don't care a damn. I don't get a ready. Back to back. Belly to belly was a jumbi jamboree. I hear the chorus back to back. Belly to belly, I don't hear a dan, I don't get a ready. Back to back. Belly to belly was a jumbi jamboree. One female jumbi wouldn't behave. See how she jumping on the grave In one hand she holding a quarter rum With the other hand she knocking conga drum The lead singer start to make his rhyme While the other jumbi rattling their bones in time One bystander had this to say It was a thrill to see the jumbi break away And what they singing Back to back, belly to belly I don't get a done, I don't get a ready Back to back Belly to belly was a jumbi jamboree. I hear the chorus back to back. Belly to belly, I don't care a damn. I don't get a ready. Back to back. Belly to belly was a jumbi jamboree. Left and right things getting sweet. I stand and mash the jumbi feet The jumbi raise his finger to warn He say, mister, take care, you mash me corn The funniest thing you could ever see Was a jumbi eating codfish and punji I never see more mobi or ginger beer Than at the jumbi parade which took place last year And what they singing? Back to back, belly to belly I don't care a damn, I don't dead already Back to back Belly to belly was a jumbi jamboree. I hear the chorus back to back. Belly to belly, I don't care a damn. I don't dead already. Back to back. Belly to belly was a jumbi jamboree. Alaikum salam, Louis Farrakhan. Thank you, the charmer, for the zombie jamboree. What a classic song. This is it for this week, folks. See you next week. That is Alert Radio for March 11th, 2010. We can be found at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. We hope you'll join us again next week. See you then. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. <laughs>